This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Returns by Annie Ernaux, which was translated from the French by me and appeared in The New Yorker in November of 2022. I didn't take the taxi that was parked in front of the railway hotel, as I would have anywhere else. As soon as I'm in sea, I go back to my old ways. The story was chosen by Lucinda Rosenfeld, who's the author of five novels, including I'm So Happy For You and Class. Hi, Lucinda. Hi, Deborah. Nice to see you. You too. So um, how and when did you become a reader of Annie Arnaud's work? Um, I actually started reading Annie Arnaud a year before she won the Nobel Prize. Uh, A friend put me onto a girl's story. Then I sort of started voraciously consuming all of it. What made you devour it so voraciously? Um, there was something startling about the prose, the language. I'm not the first to remark is incredibly direct and simple in a kind of shocking way. I had never seen prose quite that declarative in, in literary form. And it was unusual for me to read about the lives of middle-class and working-class women in a strange way, mm-hmm. to realize that you could make literature out of everyday life in some way, you know, whether abortions and punishing mothers and affairs and divorces, and um, that this was the stuff of literature, too. Right. And, and, of course, it wasn't so common for women, especially of, of Erno's generation, to begin in as child of working class parents and become a writer who might one day win the Nobel Prize. So yes, definitely. I think it's extraordinary. You know, she had stories to tell that aren't normally told because writers don't normally come from that background. Right. And I think especially too in France where yeah. writers belong to a Parisian intellectual elite generally and she's coming from the provinces and her whole life's work just startled me in some way. Yeah. Did you feel surprised or vindicated when she won the Nobel? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was amazed. Um, I know that she was at some points in her career, both revered and also mocked. I read somewhere that she was occasionally called Madame Overy, mm-hmm. <laughs> just sort of funny, but also obnoxious as hell. Um, it did feel vindicating. Um, I was also working on my own memoir at the time, so it was mm-hmm. particularly inspiring for me. I over-identified in some way. (laughs) (laughs) So the story that you're reading, Returns, was written in the mid-'80s when she was in her 40s. And I believe this was published as fiction, though it's, you know, a fictionalized version of some reality in her life. Do you think that it's representative of the later work? Um, I mean, it's interesting because after I read the story, I... I read um, her two short memoirs about her mother, uh, which were produced in the later 80s and the 90s. A Woman's Story is about, it's it's really the same, similar material, trying to give a fuller picture of her mother after she died. And then the I Remain in Darkness memoir from the 90s is about her mother's descent into dementia. They're both very grim. Um, but I did see this story as a bit of a distilled version of those books. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then she went on and wrote more about those same subjects. Yeah, but yeah. it's just an incredibly powerful story. It's so short, but she packs so much into it. Like every sentence is kind of devastating. Um, it did not particularly read like fiction. And at this point, I mean, I, I could almost ask you, like, maybe on another podcast, you've gotten to the bottom of it. But like, what is the difference between autofiction and memoir at this point? I don't have an answer. <laughs> um, well, in autofiction, you can make things up. <laughs> in memoir, right. you're not supposed right. to, I guess. Um, it puts a kind of a scrim between yeah. you and, and the past. It gives right? a certain layer of protection. It, it does seem like Erno just like gave up the pretense at some point and just was like, I have nothing to hide behind any screen and I'm just going to put it down. And I, I also think that in, in European publishing, there's less of a hard line drawn between fiction and nonfiction in right. the way that, that we do it here. That's probably true also. Well, I think we should hear the story now. So here is Lucinda Rosenfeld reading Returns by Annie Ernaux. Returns. The last time I saw my mother at her home, it was July, a Sunday, I traveled there by train. At Motville, we sat in the station for a long time. It was hot. It was quiet, both in the compartment and outside. I looked out the open window. The platform was empty. On the other side of the SNCF railroad barriers, the tall grass almost touched the lowest branches of the apple trees. It was then that I could really feel that I was approaching sea and that I was going to see my mother. The train continued on to sea at a reduced speed. Leaving the station, I thought I recognized various faces without being able to put a name to any of them. Perhaps I had never known the names. It was less hot thanks to the wind. It's always windy in sea. Everyone, including my mother, believes that it's colder in sea than in other places, even those just five kilometers away. I didn't take the taxi that was parked in front of the railway hotel, as I would have anywhere else. As soon as I'm in sea, I go back to my old ways. A taxi is for communions, weddings, and burials. There's no reason to spend money like that. I headed up to Rue Carnot to the town center. At the first patisserie, I bought cakes, eclairs, and apple tarts, the kind she used to tell me to bring home after midday mass. I bought some flowers, too, gladioli, which last a long time. Until I got to the housing complex where she lives, I didn't think anything besides. I'm going to see her again, and she's waiting for me. I knocked on the narrow door of her ground-floor studio apartment. She called out, Yes, come in. You should lock the door. I knew it was you. There's no one else it could have been. She was apronless with lipstick on, laughing, standing by the table. She put her hand on my shoulder, tilting her face up for me to kiss. At the same time, she was firing off questions about my trip, the children, the dog. She didn't answer mine. Afraid of being boring always when speaking of herself, 
Later, she repeated, as usual, I'm fine here, couldn't be better, and I have no complaints. The TV was on without sound, just the test pattern on the screen. She took the gladioli, a little uneasy, and thanked me with an artificial tone to her voice. I had forgotten. My giving her flowers from a florist had always seemed like an affectation to her, too formal. It hurt her feelings. It was as if I were fussing over her, as I would over a stranger, not family. The cakes pleased her, but she had already bought some for us on her way back from Mass. We sat opposite each other at the table that, along with the buffet, almost filled her apartment. I remembered what she'd said the first time I'd come here after she moved in. I bought it big. It can seat at least ten people. Not once in six years. Nevertheless, she had covered it with an oilcloth so as not to damage it. She was breathless, as though she had no idea where to start among all the things we had to talk about. It was dark in her studio, and there was a slight odor. She didn't air it out enough. When I was a child, she'd take me with her to visit some old ladies on Sundays. Leaving their house, she'd sniff the air. It always smells so musty in old people's homes. They never open the windows. Because she used to say this, I hadn't expected her to become one of those people. She talked about the weather and sea in the spring and the people who had died since my last visit, getting irritated with my failure to remember them, which she felt was intentional. It's that you don't want to remember. Giving me detail after detail until I could figure out whom she meant. The person lived there. Her daughter went to school with me, and so on. We set the table at quarter to twelve, the last time she'd waited until twelve-thirty. She was accelerating everything. At one point, she said that the days of beautiful weather would soon be over. While looking for napkins, I found a stack of romance magazines at the back of the buffet. I didn't say anything about them, but she guessed that I'd seen them. Those little magazines, Paulette gives them to me. Otherwise, you know I wouldn't read them. That's all she reads, these little stories about nothing. Still afraid that I'd criticize her reading habits. I almost said that it didn't matter if she preferred Nu Deux to the Malraux she'd just borrowed from the public library. She would have been unhappy if I'd seemed to think her incapable of reading the kind of thing I read. The meal passed in silence, her eyes on her plate, her slightly sloppy movements, those of someone used to eating alone. She refused to let me do the dishes. What will there be for me to do once you leave? She was sitting up straight in her chair, her arms crossed. I'd never seen her move her body in a natural, relaxed way. She never ran her fingers gently through her hair, never slipped a hand inside the neckline of her blouse while deep in a book. Her only gestures of abandon were expressions of fatigue, stretching with her arms above her head, slumping in a chair, her legs out in front of her. Less hardness in her face than there had been, 
less of that tension you need to make your way through life. Her gray eyes, which had always suspected the worst of me, were fixed on me with a hungry softness. She had been counting the days, had told herself in the morning that this was the day I was coming. And there we were, the two of us, and half our time had already passed. The tone of our visit was playful and kind. The other tone, the violence from when I was fifteen, would not return. Cow bitch, I'm killing myself for her. I'm going to get the fuck out of here. You're going to jail first, you useless idiot. She tried to come up with more subjects of conversation so that I wouldn't go too soon, leaving her alone with her desire for me, her longing to live with me, her daughter forever. Paulette brought me some gooseberries. You wouldn't believe how good they are. It makes sense since they're in season. Remind me to give you some before you go. Paulette, a former neighbor who was my age, came to see her every week. She had never left sea. I could hear cars in the distance on the trunk road, a radio in the apartment next door, broadcasting the Tour de France, perhaps. It's peaceful. It's always peaceful here. Sundays are the quietest. Many times she had advised me to get some rest during my vacation. The sentence that used to horrify me the most when I was complaining that I didn't know what to do. Just have a little rest. Again, I felt the onset of annoyance. But her words had no power over me anymore. They only reawakened memories, the way sports radio on Sunday or an apple tart can. I could feel the boredom of summers in sea. Reading from morning to night, Sunday movies, restricted or for adults only, in the three-quarters empty theater of the Mondial while she thought I was out for a nice walk with an older cousin. The children's games at the street fair for local businesses, the public dance hall, which I didn't dare enter. In the middle of the afternoon, a cat appeared on the windowsill of the kitchenette. She jumped up from her armchair to let it in, an adopted cat that she fed, that slept on her bed in the daytime. She was the happiest she'd been since I got there. The cat kept us busy for a long time, watching it, taking turns holding it. She recounted all its tricks. The little pig clawed the curtains, and even her wrists, which were striped with red in two places. As she used to, she said, every living thing is beautiful. She seemed to have forgotten that I was going to leave. At the last minute, she pulled out a form that urgently needed to be filled out for her social security. I don't have time. Just give it to me and I'll send it to you. It'll take no time. You're five minutes from the station. I'll miss my train. You've never missed it. You can take the next one. She was on the verge of tears. She concluded with her habitual... This is very upsetting for me. After kissing me at the door, 
She tried to keep talking. Last image of her, in the doorway, rounded arms framing her heavy silhouette in a yellow dress, her prettiest one tight around the chest and the belly, a wide, fixed smile. This time, once again, I felt that I was leaving badly in a cowardly way. I took the shortest route to the train, the one that goes past the Shell station. There, in the old days, I'd stop to prepare myself for her interrogating look when I returned from the cinema, bracing myself, wiping off what was left of my lipstick. What will people think of you? On the train, I couldn't help imagining her, washing the dishes in a solitary silence, all sign of my presence soon erased. I watched sea disappear, the Sernam buildings, the railway workers' housing beside the tracks. A month later, I came back to see my mother. She had suffered sunstroke after mass and had been admitted to the hospital in C. I aired out her apartment, retrieved paperwork from her buffet, threw out the perishables in her fridge. In the vegetable drawer, in a plastic bag that was knotted at the top, were the gooseberries I had forgotten to take the previous time, now just a brown liquid heap. That was Lucinda Rosenfeld reading Returns by Annie Ernaux. The story was published in the French literary magazine L'Autre Journal in 1985 and included in the collection Écrire la Vie by Édition Gallimard in 2011. The English translation appeared in The New Yorker in November of 2022. So going back to this idea of memoir, autofiction versus fiction, we do know from Ernaud's other books that this is definitely based on fact and, and close to fact. Does that change how you read it? Can you just read it as a short story? I think it does work as a short story. Um, it, it doesn't seem to me necessary that you know Erno's autobiography to read it. I did, of course, like probably every other reader, project certain assumptions onto the story. For instance, I mean, the story is at its heart, this distilled portrait of this painful mother-daughter relationship, claustrophobic push and pull of this mother and daughter. And I assumed, maybe unfairly reading it, that this was a story about an only child, for instance, and a widowed mother, which explains the intensity and agony mm -hmm. that she's dealing with in the story and um, the terrible guilt involved for the daughter who's doesn't, of course, visit the elderly mother enough and this terrible unmet longing in the mother who is also passive-aggressive and, <laughs> and guilting in her desire to extend the visit from the daughter. But I, I do think it actually works just as a story. I mean, all these incredibly telling details, they're just incredibly painful. My mother's artificial smile you know, the fact that they run out of conversation during the lunch. It's just, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of extraordinary. So I do think it works on that yeah. level. And yeah. 
I mean, there's so much else going on in this story, too. It's firing on so many different levels to me. Yeah. Yeah, even in the title, I think, you know, we have this title, Returns. And, yes, she's returning to her hometown. She's returning to see her mother. She's returning to her old habits, not taking taxis or buying certain pastries. Yes. But what was also interesting to me is that the verb, you know, in French it's called retour, and that comes from the verb retourner, which, yes, means return, go back. It can also mean to turn something over, to, you know, like flip a pancake or, oh, um, or turn around and kind of look backwards. So I feel as though that element is really a part of the story as that, well. That actually is, is super interesting um, because to me the story, if it's on the surface about a mother and daughter, it's in a larger sense about time and the sort of like just cruelty of time and not just in terms of the familiar agony of growing old and the loneliness and that and the emptiness of life when she mentions like the the dinner table that can seat 10 but of course has never had a dinner party at it <sighs> but not not just the loneliness of old age but the sort of like the way time simultaneously slows down for the elderly but at the same time is like rushing towards its end point mm-hmm. you know of death i mean Erno starts straight off with the train slowing into town, which mm-hmm. is like just sets the stage, like everything's moving in slow motion. And then the way she tries to stall out the lunch visit and she's both rushing and a victim of stalled time, like at the same mm-hmm. time, like the way she tells her daughter not to do the dishes because, you know, what will there be for me to do once you leave? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Just really, that's quite a line. Um, But then also her anxiety about time and the way she starts setting the table too early. Yeah. Which is something my mother-in-law who had Alzheimer's did, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting that the title is also about flipping, you Mm -hmm. said. It's about Mm -hmm. flipping things over because it is like a way in which... The mother and the daughter, you know, like the power in the relationship is now all with the... um, In the daughter's hands. It's all in the daughter's hands. The mother is desperate and wants to extend the visit. And the daughter is can't wait to get out of there (laughs) and get back on the train and rush back to Paris or whatever is presumed, the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have this also flipping of someone trying to hang on. It's... (laughs) It's yeah. really painful. It's also, I mean, can I bring my own mm-hmm. life story sure. into this? I yeah. mean, it's... Uh, it's autofiction. I should... I should. <laughs> <laughs> it's autofiction. I mean, it's funny. I actually, uh, a few months ago, suggested that we talk about this story because I had not realized also that next month is the 10th anniversary of my mother's passing. So I must have subconsciously been on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did over-identify with certain elements of the story anyone who grew up in a town and left for a city Mm -hmm. and the parents stay in the town, um, even if it's New Jersey, is familiar with the feeling of not just the guilt for leaving too soon, but the parent talking about kids you grew up with Mm -hmm. that you don't always remember. (laughs) Don't you remember the so-and-sos? And, you know, and there was a lot of painful details like that, the guilt about leaving again and all mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, what you say about the, the sort of power 
structure having been turned upside down. You know, when she's a child, she's got her mother disapproving of her, yes. telling her not to do things. Um, she's rebelling against it, but the power is in her mother's hands. Now she comes back, and the mother's just desperate to please her. Yes. And and she's yeah holding herself apart a little bit. Oh, yeah, there's the painful scene where she asks her to fill out a social security form, and the daughter says, I have to make the train. Yeah, and to add to that, throughout all of Erno's work is this huge issue of social class and the the estrangement of having left her mother's social class for a more sophisticated one. And again, that's part of time to like leaving. It isn't just that the train is leaving, it's that she has literally left her mother behind in the provinces. Oh, and then also in the... Um, this was actually somewhat true to my autobiography, um, but the defensiveness about the romance novels. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, yes, my mother used to have, uh, she would keep the Jane Austen out front, and there was romance novels, lots of Regency romance mm-hmm. novels, and she would keep them hidden away. That that detail was like, definitely <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spoke to me yeah. as well. Um, it was actually difficult to translate that line because these are particularly well-known. They're like, photographs of a story playing out, not comic books, but you've actually got actors who are photographed in these kind of romance stories. Oh, really? To go along with a mild text. Oh, Um, I didn't realize that. So they're especially non-literary in that sense. Oh, okay, um, right. Because they're visual. So So Regency romances, 200-page Regency romances would have been a cut above. That's (laughs) already like... Yeah, exactly. But, you know, there's, um, there's so much going on with the social class. So much. There's uh, all the signifiers of it. Yeah, there's actually, I, since, since I read the other books about her mother, reread them recently, um, there's like a line from I Remain in Darkness, the book about dementia, saying it's part of the same story, really. Her mother would use complicated words to try to mm-hmm. impress her. Mm-hmm. There's this line, writing a book about one's mother inevitably raises the issue of writing and I think she means in terms of what language to put my thoughts in. I mean, the language is very simple. Arno definitely sticks with, it's almost like Hemingway asks sometimes, like, it was hot yeah, <laughs> in the yeah, opening paragraph yeah. there. She calls it flat writing. Flat writing. Flat, yeah. Ah. Um, and I think she's strongly resistant to, you know, linguistic flourishes and imagery and figurative writing. And, and maybe... It just doesn't match what she's writing about. Maybe it's not appropriate for what she wants to write about or present. Right. And um, I think there's a sort of true to her working class origins thing with exactly. that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, since you translated it, how is the, the language in French, like, does it have a an, an attitude that is impossible to translate into English in some way? Is there a tone that's not necessarily evident in a translation. Because it is so without flourish, you know, it wasn't that it's not so difficult to translate, I think. Um, It's easy to make mistakes, right, to go for a fancier word or, you know, to invest your translation with your own vision of what's happening. But it's an unusual voice. And I I thought about it, you know, that the scene with the, um, where the daughter brings flowers and the mother kind of bristles at this because right. she thinks it's affected. She thinks it's pretentious right. to buy flowers in a store. And I thought it's kind of the same thing. You know, it's what perhaps there are no bristles at 
with flowery language. Like oh, it's, it's pretentious. It's right, kind of an right. affectation that you're imposing on something. Right. Um, That's so interesting. Um, in that same paragraph, she's talking about how her mother accepted the cakes but recoiled from the flowers. Yeah. And I actually was something that came out in this story that is also another through line in Oliver Noe's work, which is food. Mm-hmm. You could write an entire like dissertation on food in Annie Arnaud's work. Yeah, exactly. And it's so intense as this, you know, symbol of giving, mm-hmm. but also like control and like loss of control. And with that devastating last image of the gooseberries turned mm-hmm. to mush at the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, it beca- in this story, food is the last thing her mother has to give the daughter or to keep her there. You know, she sets the table early. It's like, you know, yeah. she'll get bored quickly, give her food. And then I mean, the humiliation of the daughter rushing out, forgetting to take the one gift that her mother had mm-hmm. left for her. Mm-hmm. It's so grim that I'm laughing out of, yeah, um, yeah. which is the gooseberries. And then that, that mush at the end, which is, well, death, I guess, because I think you're supposed to assume in this story that well, it says it's the last time she saw her, so I last guess... Time, it's the last time she sees her at home, and after that, it's only in the hospital, I suppose. Right, right. It's the end of this life, this kind of life. Exactly. I don't know how yeah. autobiographical that last end, that ending is. Um, in, in the books, A Woman's Story and I Remain in Darkness, there are periods where the mother comes to live with the daughter, and they don't go that well. And, mm-hmm. like, you can kind of imagine, and she has her kids, and, you know, and she feels like... She's going to jump out a window the way people often do when their elderly mm-hmm. mother <laughs> mm-hmm. shows up in a small mm-hmm. house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the gooseberries, it's interesting because that is the one moment in the story where I think we're getting something both literal and, and metaphorical, right? You know, it is a symbol of decay and, yes. and rot. But it's also um, not really even a symbol. It's just evidence of the fact that the daughter didn't quite pay attention when she was there oh, and totally. didn't remember it's, to, it's, to take It's these. just guilt writ large. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it really is. And it's funny because the gladiolas were also, um, she mentions, um, she was hoping that they were a long-lasting flower and they would continue after she had gone. Yeah. But actually it turns out that probably the flowers got thrown out, but it was the gooseberries that yeah. sort of were the last remains, <laughs> remains of the daughter's yeah. visit, which is yeah. just so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Accusing evidence. It's interesting, though, when you think about food and the role it plays in, in some of her writing, that she does not tell us what the mother serves for lunch. They go through lunch in silence, and they eat, and then clear dishes, and that's it. And we never know. And you know, the mother's probably been cooking all morning. (laughs) Um, uh, That's that and that eating scene where they eat in silence, also excruciating. And her mother's slightly sloppy because she's used to eating alone. And well, what you're talking about um, plays into another quote I saw in uh, pulled out from a woman's story. The Mm larger memoir about her mother, um, where she says about her mother, she preferred giving to everybody rather than taking from them. Isn't writing also a way of giving? And I wonder if this sort of plays into the idea that like her mother, you know, that the food she gave is almost irrelevant. It's just like the act of giving her lunch Mm -hmm. that mattered. And then like the end of that story where, where her neglect is writ large. And then, you know, you wonder sometimes... I have thought about this in myself because I've written about my mother also, but 
the, the writing is like a, not a compensation, but like a return gift, even if it's not entirely flattering. It's like a way of returning the favor on some level. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's actually an, another extraordinary quote in the same book about, she wrote, I believe I'm writing about my mother because it is my turn to bring her into the world. Mm-hmm. Food was the last thing that the mother had to offer, but writing is the last thing that the daughter has to offer mm-hmm. as a as a giving thing, even though she's dead and she can't. <laughs> it, yeah. It's hard to know if she would have been humiliated by these portraits or not, you know. I suspect that the, <laughs> the mother in this story, at least, would not have been happy about this story. And I don't think so. You know, it's funny also this idea that the mother doesn't like sort of pretension and affectation. And everything she does in this day is kind of a performance the daughter arrives. She's taken her apron off. She's put uh, on lipstick. Right. The, the she's dr- put her, on best her best dress. dress. Right. And then the artificial smile she mentions. Yeah, her fixed smile at the and end. end. Can we and talk about the cat also? Oh like, yes. What let's do we talk about the cat? <laughs> that was a fascinating moment to me. There's just so much packed in this this short thing. What did you take uh, make of the cat interlude? <laughs> God, well, that's the one moment where the mother relaxes, isn't it? And then she's she feels at ease because mm-hmm. she has this little creature that she has, you know, adopted and cares for. Mm-hmm. And she can scold it for scratching her <laughs> right. and scratching the curtains. You know, it's, it's in a way right. she's kind of mirroring her ideal of motherhood with this cat. And so, and she's proud of it. Right. She's right. proud to show and this to her daughter. And also the cat is, unlike the daughter who comes from the big city, the cat is not judging her. The cat just comes and takes without looking at her romance magazines. Mm-hmm. and But also there's kind of an underlying violence, which maybe mirrors the mother-daughter from the past, which is the scratches on yeah. the wrist. But she's okay with it because the cat comes back every day. Mm-hmm. And the daughter only shows up once in a while. And also to me, the cat, she said something about how like it kept us busy. That was yeah. it. You know, like I was speaking about in the beginning, it's like the whole story is really about this older woman's attempt to slow down time. Yeah. Even as time is slowing around her. Um, and then the cat keeps them busy. So it's like the cat is a break from this. The well, pressure. Death yeah. march. <laughs> yeah, never, yeah. For lack of better. Yeah. Better thing to say. <laughs> yeah. And a distraction from, you know, they can both look at a cat. They don't have to look at each other. They don't have to yes. talk to each other. There's something they can talk about that takes the pressure off. And also just assuming this is a portrait of an only child and widowed mother, this is the intensity of the one-on-one is sometimes like, <laughs> you know, the, the, the third term creating mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a little room to breathe. I read it that way too. Like it could have been a neighbor. It could have been Pauline, the neighbor with yeah. the gooseberries, but it was the cat. Yeah. Because the whole story to me is about sort of cla- the claustrophobia of that mother-daughter relationship, this sort of impossible dance. Like they're too close, and she's also estranged because of her having moved away. And there's also this line um, where she talks about how her mother used to make fun of the old people's homes that smelled bad, right. and here yeah. she is yeah. <laughs> doing the same thing. And there's a kind of assumption that the daughter herself will end up in the same place in the same alone in a smelly apartment, which I hope is not true. But, you know, there's a kind of recognition of, like, the generations just, like, repeating each other, the life cycle, and the daughter becoming the mother eventually. So I I, I suppose we're supposed to feel that this daughter does not become this mother because she got out, because she's 
Right. You know, she's not Paulette who still lives in the same town and never left. Uh, right. That's also um, possible, yes. And and now there's this distance between them. But she's trapped to the extent that she can't stop writing about her mother, <laughs> which, yeah, which is true. like when I look at all the Arnaud work I've read, I haven't read all of it, but there's a kind of constantly going back. Like I have transcended my origins, but I, I can't ever separate fully. And I just keep going back there in my writing. Really, all of her writing is about leaving mm-hmm. in a way. It's mm-hmm. never about being comfortable. Just like her mother's not comfortable there's a line in the beginning of the story about her mother never looked at rest. Yeah. She never put she her... never sits naturally. Sits right at ease or something. Yeah. And then, like, in some weird way, or no, is part of, you know, the Parisian literary elite, of course. Mm-hmm. But, like, maybe she's also in some way talking about herself as never fully feeling integrated yeah. in some way. Yeah. So you were talking about how the, um, the daughter's always leaving and... It's one of the, I think, strongest lines in the story, but I, I don't entirely know how to understand it when she does leave and she said she felt she had left in a cowardly way again. What is it that she hasn't done or how has she been cowardly? I mean, I saw the cowardly way line as, you know, she's suddenly in a rush for the train and refusing to do the documents and I almost read into that like there wasn't even a proper goodbye. She just couldn't take it anymore and got the hell out of there. I mean, you see her like saying she's not looking back when she leaves the town. There's a line at the end about how she took the shortest route back to the Mm -hmm. station. And I think that's part of the cowardly stuff. But there's just something cowardly about leaving her home also, leaving her people behind. Assuming this is some autobiographical, her mother was this very proud woman who sort of got out of the factories and got herself a step up on the ladder by becoming a grocery store mm-hmm. owner and cafe mm-hmm. owner. She climbed like one notch on the ladder and so spent her entire life like working and cleaning yeah. and you yeah. know keeping shop and everything like that. So the cowardly is just guilt about leaving her class behind yeah. Um, yeah. in a more general sense. And her mother just standing at the door in her yellow dress, you know, smiling after her. I mean, for the mother, I keep getting that feeling that for the mother, this is a sort of performance that she's written in advance, you know, that she's run through everything she's going to do in her head. And that's why she speeds up too fast, you know, with the lunch. And every time it doesn't quite go to plan, you know, she's thrown off. So when when the daughter won't fill out the... Social Security forms, you know, she says it's so upsetting, you know, it's very... I know. And there's like, isn't sort of recognition halfway through the lunch that she's already predicting the end of the lunch in the middle of lunch with that line about the dishes. Mm-hmm. Like, She has um, everything planned. Um, I mean, Erno once said that her work was, was an ethnological study of myself. Um, and you certainly, you know, you get those ethnological details here, you know, all the little little signifiers of class, of time period, of yes. background. Absolutely. Everything that Arnaud writes is, is about its historical context, too, which was uh, coming back to the beginning of the conversation, something that astonished me. Also, um, the way that the stories she was telling were not just about the psychology of 
young women and Mm -hmm. and mothers and daughters and affairs and whatever. It's always in the context of our own space and time and place in where she was standing in society at that Mm -hmm. moment Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis others. I just thought about um, the the title return. What she's doing at the end is returning to her own life. Oh, right. When Uh, she's rushing to get away. That's also another return. So the return return isn't just the return to the provinces to see her mother. It's the return to like what to the I city and to the city new life. and to the right. I mean, it's called returns. Returns, plural. So, plural. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. So you're someone who's written a lot of fiction and and now working on memoir. What is the attraction of? You know, when you write fiction, you're writing a narrative. You're you're creating a story with a beginning and an end. What's the attraction of shaping your own life into that kind of narrative? Well, I think to back up a tiny bit um, about how I was inspired reading Annie Arnaud's work, I think it was like similar to what we're talking about, um, just talking about it was a sort of recognition that the familiar events of a mundane middle-class life or working class in her case set in their historical context was was worthy of literature in some way. Um, you know, I remember in the 90s, uh, there was a, a kind of a culture-wide craze for memoir. And, you know, it never even occurred to me at that moment, just I was starting my career, um, that like any of the stories that like the familiar exploitations and humiliations of being a young woman, for instance, in that yeah. era, that those were worthy of serious treatment in some way because they were familiar incidents. And I had thought of memoir as, you know, extraordinary tales or mm-hmm. some kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, how I climbed Everest. Right. Yeah. And the idea that those same stories might be interesting in their in their context of the age I was living in, and that I could like that my own diaries, for instance, could be source material. I got. I mean, most of Erno's work is based on diaries. A lot of it is. Yeah. Um, that that could be source material um, without shame or without apology, um, and that they could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Reading the Erno opened up the idea that you could kind of write history out of out of things that had happened to lots of people, mm-hmm. versions of stories that had happened to lots of people. You know. so there's a sociological interest in your own life. Yes. And also, I just have to say this, like a lot of Erno's work is about shame. This story is about the shame of being a bad daughter, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are about the shame of uh, having desire, you know. Uh, Shame is one of my favorite themes, <laughs> and um, there's no apologies in any of her work. There's no couching. There's just a sort of laying out of a life that is, like, really refreshing and mm-hmm. uh, sort of extraordinary. And maybe in me. some of those situations, she's expected by society to feel shame, but she somewhat refuses it. She does not. She does not, Exactly. And she continued this line of writing, even with her children in the picture, though she doesn't write about them directly. I will say that. I have not Mm -hmm. seen anything about her sons. Um, But it takes a lot of guts to put 
your own stuff out there. Well, thank you to, to Annie Erno for freeing you up <laughs> <laughs> to thank write you. about yes. things that you, you. <laughs> that you hadn't written about. So, Exactly. Thank you so much well, for doing you, this. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Annie, and thank you, Deborah. Annie Ernaux, the winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Literature, is the author of two dozen works of fiction and nonfiction, including A Woman's Story, A Man's Place, and The Years. Her Nobel lecture, titled I Will Write to Avenge My People, her book The Young Man, and Annie Ernaux the Box Set were all published in English by Seven Stories Press earlier this year. Lucinda Rosenfeld is the author of five novels, including Class, The Pretty One, and I'm So Happy for You. She's been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 2000, when her first novel, What She Saw, was excerpted in The New Yorker's debut fiction issue. Join us this month for the first-ever live taping of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast with guest Margaret Atwood at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto, October 21st. You can find information and tickets at hotdocs.ca. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.